from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights and a special series on health disparities in minority health in partnership with the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, a new first-of-its-kind group focused on minorities and rare disease. I'm your host, Stacey Kerr of HPS, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by special guest host, Tammy Boyd from Black Women's Health Imperative. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I know we're both um, really excited today to talk to Dr. Elena Rios, President and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association, representing Hispanic physicians in the United States. Dr. Rios serves on the steering committee of the RDDC, the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, in addition to many other hats, you're everywhere, Dr. Rios, and we're gonna we're gonna jump in and talk about those things today. But Dr. Rios, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. I I can't even start to list all of your affiliations, your appointments, your awards, Dr. Rios. I, I really do feel like you are everywhere, but you've been um, inside federal and state government, including positions at HHS, Office of Minority Health, throughout California. You're a trained physician, and you've been leading the National Hispanic Medical Association, uh, whose mission is to improve the health of Hispanics. I know you also serve as president of NHMA's National Hispanic Health Foundation to direct educational and research activities so important to this work, which we're going to talk about here today. So let's dive in. And Dr. Rios, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about NHMA, the organization you lead and uh, the unique concerns that the Hispanic community faces when it comes to healthcare access and quality. Sure, the National Hispanic Medical Association was started uh, actually when I worked at the White House because uh, we were bringing in healthcare reform experts for the Clinton White House. And I was charged with bringing in Hispanic health professionals from doctors to nurses to dentists, social workers, hospital executives, And we all thought that, you know, the nurses had started the National Association of Hispanic Nurses in the 1970s, and the Hispanic Dental Association started in the 80s. So we thought, well, why not start our National Hispanic Medical Association? And we actually started it uh, at one of the photo ops uh, for healthcare reform in 1993, and then we incorporated in 94. The mission has always been about our communities and we've recognized the challenges that the community faces that are unique, especially because we're large families, young populations, but many face poverty and social determinants of health, uh, living in uh, poor housing and, and having really toxic stress because of all the crime in our communities and uh, you know, living check to check, having large families, those types of, of issues. And also the Hispanic population in this country has been the largest group proportionally without insurance, without healthcare Mm. insurance, and also has unique characteristics of language access uh, and cultural issues, uh, which limit access to healthcare. And finally, we have just like the, our sister uh, organizations that, that look at policies for other minorities, we all have less access to providers and to healthcare and mental health services and rare disease services because we have less Hispanic, Black, Native American, and, uh, and Asian uh, subgroup doctors and nurses and dentists. Providers. 
providers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's very important to realize how many challenges our communities have and why our organization decided that we would be an advocate and, and really focus on government policy with Congress and the White House uh, and HHS and other agencies moving forward when we started in the 1990s. And we've been true to our mission of, of, uh, of being an advocacy group, uh, but we've also expanded to build an infrastructure of providers at different levels. So we represent physicians, over 50,000 Hispanic physicians, also physicians taking care of Hispanic patients. Uh, in residents, we have a council of residents, a council of, of, of health professional students, and we have a national Hispanic health professional leadership network that's actually made up of a variety of provider organizations that are all professionals, including dietitians and social workers uh, that are needed. Dr. Reyes, I want to I want to just ask. You said social determinants of health, which is so. You know, we talk about it a lot now, and we hear so much about it. And I'm curious. Back in the '90s, and when this was getting started. Was that a part of, I mean, were you talking about it in the same way? I think we've identified so many of these social determinants of health now, especially as it relates to minority populations. But was that part of the conversation when this started? Well, we were called vulnerable communities. And I think the issue of minority health actually had started in 1985 with the re first reports in the Reagan administration that were called black and minority morbidity and mortality that created the Office of Minority Health at HHS. In the, by the 1990s, what happened was the census of 1990 was the first census that showed the important trajectory of minority populations in this country. We call it the browning of America. Mm -hmm. And it was the Clinton administration, which started in 1992, 93, Two. that had the data from the 1990 census that showed that Hispanics were actually going to, going to become one out of four Americans by the 2040s. So I think the issue of community, to answer your question about, about community, what happened was there was data collected to find that 10% maybe of, of diseases are taken care of by the healthcare delivery system. And the majority of, of diseases are caused by the community uh, environment that we live in. Right. Right. Uh, and I think in the later on, the issue became health in all policies, that we should look at health care impacted by transportation, by housing, by food, uh, by our occupations. And then this, the concept of the social and the structural determinants of health came up. Uh, but it's all been discussed I, for a long time. And I have to say that our communities do understand that they are always looking for upward mobility to move to neighborhoods that are cleaner, nicer, you mm -hmm. know, um, but because of our low incomes, because of poverty, we have this, we live in the cycle of poverty in the East Los Angeles and the Bronx and the South. And we know how important it is uh, as families and traditions passed on to, to be survivors and to do what we can to help ourselves in terms of healthy, as healthy a lifestyle as you can get. Anyway, that's, that's really the thinking behind social determinants of health. Yeah. We do need to help our communities get educated. Here we are 30 years later. So let's jump to COVID. You know, let's talk about COVID and how the COVID pandemic, you know, uniquely affected the Hispanic community. 
I mean, from your perspective and your expertise, also, you know, how can race affect the quality of care for Hispanics and other minority populations throughout the healthcare system? But, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about how COVID has really, you know, impacted uniquely the Hispanic community. Yeah, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, right away, uh, it was realized that uh, Hispanic communities who live in multi-generational housing were going to have a problem with isolation, quarantine, social distancing, uh, as was needed to mitigate the COVID-19 disease. And I think for Hispanic populations, also the importance of being essential workers and not and having to go to places like supermarkets and the farm workers and the meatpacking plants where they work exposed them in higher rates. So there were much more, many, many more cases, twice as many than the white population uh, or the general population uh, and many more hospitalizations, you know, up to, up to four times as many hospitalizations and three times as many deaths in every part of the country where you see data collected by Hispanics. And that's another issue for us is that we have very little data on different uh, groups. Some states don't only collect white and black data, just traditionally racial data and not the ethnic data needed for Hispanics. So I've seen um, NHMA is actively encouraging vaccination. I know you have a vaccine for all campaign. Can you talk about and how you describe the progress on vaccinations within the Hispanic community? to date? And are there specific barriers that the Hispanic community continue to face in vaccine access? Where do you kind of see this going in terms of overcoming vaccine hesitancy? The major factors involved in vaccine hesitancy for the Hispanic community has been access to information. And again, because we have a population that doesn't have insurance, they don't go to the doctor or they're told to stay home and many, many elderly, especially who need the vaccines are isolated home by themselves without transportation. Uh, Hispanics are working and don't have childcare. So so the information is a problem. The other other piece has been the lack of the digital divide and lack of of computers to get onto websites that the public health department seem to think is the way to go to get an appointment. I think the opportunity, though, with the Biden administration uh, right away acknowledging the importance of having a more leadership in vaccination distribution was to increase opportunities to get vaccinations at pharmacies, the retail pharmacies, uh, the mega sites brought in with FEMA and the National Guard. And also bringing it into the communities, to the communities, uh, not just through a website at a pub at your county public health department. Right. And also, the, um, and I have to say that the county public health department process brought in pharmaceutical uh, partners from the grocery stores, et cetera, pharmacies and grocery stores. Yes. But I think the opportunity was to broaden the community sites, also yes. mobile clinics were supported. Uh, so, and, and now the, the other confusion has been the different groups of individuals that could get vaccinated. You had to wait your turn. And, yes. uh, and we thought, this is the, from the National Hispanic Medical Association perspective, that we really needed to focus on families and getting communication to the family that everybody should get vaccinated. So we, we have created a campaign called Vaccinate for All. 
And we also work with the, um, you know, the ad council that has, uh, it's up sure. to you. And the American Lung Association had a, a get your shot. And, you know, it's, but everybody's, even NBC and Telemundo plan your vaccine. But if yeah. you notice, all the language is about individuals getting a vaccine, whereas we yeah. think it should be vaccinate for all. Yes, yes. And, and especially, and, uh, and I imagine in the Hispanic community, that's so multi-generational. Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, people have liked the concept. And we are uh, working with our partners uh, in the Hispanic health professional groups uh, and our medical societies and our chapters and members and other individuals to, to help train um, others about the importance of the, of the language and about the so, messages. Dr. Rios, just given all of your experience and, you know, you took us through this, you know, sitting at the White House in the 90s and to today, given all of your experience crafting policy at the federal and state level, how optimistic are you that the pandemic's illumination of health disparities, which for some people, unfortunately, it was the first time they realized how, how the, the magnitude of the problem, but how, how, how confident are you that that will spur meaningful and lasting change in the near term? I'm very hopeful given the leadership of the Biden administration to create not only a COVID-19 health equity task force, uh, Vice President Harrison, Harris actually had created laws, uh, that, uh, bills that haven't become law yet for CDC to have a health equity uh, uh, and racial task force on COVID-19. Uh, and then the HHS itself uh, has actually uh, appointed a Latino for the first time in our nation's history to be the yeah. head of the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, and the Intergovernmental Affairs Office has invited all of the healthcare provider organizations, including the hospitals and the, the uh, providers uh, and the, and from the minority groups, it's the NMA and the National Medical Association, the National Hispanic Medical Association, to be involved with listening sessions and sharing of ideas and strategies. So, so and, there's and a place at the table for, for there's everyone. There's a place there. at the table, in fact, in, in, and through these coalition efforts, especially with the RDDC, we're learning how to build coalitions with different stakeholders between providers and patient advocacy groups too. Yeah, yeah. And I want, I want to come back in. I want to take a quick break and then let's come back in and jump into the, to the work of the RDDC and some of the solutions and the, the, um, the policy changes that, that, um, that you're working on. But let's take a quick break. You're listening to HPS Insights, special series on health disparities in partnership with the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition. Hamilton Place Strategies, HPS, is an analytical public affairs consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C., New York, and California. HPS uses substantive analysis to understand complex topics and create public affairs tools to explain issues to target audiences and reach critical stakeholders. We achieve our clients' goals by enhancing understanding of issues, products, and companies, and ultimately improving outcomes. Learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight. Welcome back. We're in conversation with Dr. Elena Rios, president of the National Hispanic Medical Association, and I'm joined by Tammy Boyd from Black Women's Health Imperative. So you mentioned the RDDC and um, why it's so important to sort of bring together 
different and new stakeholders, Dr. Rios. I know a few years ago, the, um, the National Hispanic Health Foundation, part of your organization, launched a Hispanic patient-centered health research institute to increase the capacity of Hispanic and non-Hispanic junior faculty to conduct inclusive, culturally relevant health research, so important. Tell us a little bit more about the Institute and what's at the top of the agenda for 2021. Well, you know, we, we started the concept that, that we should build our infrastructure, our, our providers with insights from senior providers and researchers uh, mentoring junior faculty so that they could understand the important void, uh, uh, you know, gaps in research for the Hispanic uh, community in terms of their health and healthcare. So we, we've, got, we've gotten funded by PCORI for community-based participatory research uh, to set a Hispanic health research agenda. And then we moved on to the actual mentoring program. The mentoring program is uh, one day institutes um, at our national conference. And, and, and also in the summer, we had a couple of institutes, but we decided that for this year that we would continue that mentoring uh, and we got funded by NIH to be able to develop a, a group of young, junior faculty that were either in their last year of residency, in their fellowship, or were instructors uh, on the importance of understanding the NIH um, uh, opportunities, uh, how to write grants and how to meet people from different institutes. So what we're trying to do with the National Hispanic Health Foundation in terms of research is uh, have, we call our, we call our uh, research group our, our NHHF Research Network, and that's the group that will become senior researchers in Hispanic health research available as resources to other coalitions uh, like the RDDC and, and also available to be mentors to the next generation. And it, it fits perfectly within our NHMA structure of, of mentoring from the doctor to the young doctor, to the residents, to the medical students. Um, and, and I think that um, that's really where we're at. It's, it's in the planning stages. The, the Institute itself uh, it has to be um, further organized, uh, but, but we are developing the mentoring components and the researchers themselves Incorporating it into their training. Yeah, we have a database of about a couple hundred researchers that are all involved in different disciplines. Um, right. The next step for NHMA, just so you, you know, uh, we can connect here, is that we are developing sections by discipline. So there's, you know, not just a, a family practice discipline, internal medicine, pediatrics, but also specialties like. Uh, rare diseases or dermatology or, you know, and I think that that's going to be an important resource for other coalitions uh, like the RDDC. We know that um, diverse representation in clinical trials or genome studies continues to be a real challenge. Can you really, can you speak, Dr. Rios, to how Hispanic patients are being engaged and represented um, in clinical trials and what can be done from your perspective to improve this? Yeah, Hispanic patients have been very uh, dismally invited into clinical trials, and I think there's a bias among providers that Hispanic patients just are not going to be compliant and aren't going to be able to meet appointments, you know, so they don't even ask them to be involved in clinical trials. Uh, we ha- and we see this with the Food and Drug Administration's uh, program on data collection of minorities and 
And there are very few, less than, I don't know, less than 5% of, of people that are of people of color are in our clinical trials uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, and, and probably one, one thing that could be done is the community where our people of color and Latinos live, those doctors need to be, need to have the infrastructure to be able to include uh, large numbers of Hispanic patients from communities where they live into clinical trials, not just giving uh, uh, grants from the pharmaceutical companies to large medical institutions, academic health institutions, or, you know, the big clinics in our, the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic in our community, in our country that don't necessarily connect to doctors in the community. And the other opportunity really is to have connections with community health centers, which traditionally have taken care of poor, undocumented people that can't get into a doctor's office and, and, don't, and aren't insured. So there will be a lot more Hispanic patients in community health centers, and they should be included in the infrastructure of clinical trials in the future, too. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Rios, we recently talked to... Um... Linda Guller-Blount, of course, from the the Black Women's Health Imperative. She joined us on the podcast and shared more about the RDDC and and its work. And I know you serve on the steering committee. Can you, let's talk about some of the delays and barriers to diagnosis and treatment, specifically that Hispanic patients with rare disease encounter. Well, we, uh, we, we did have patient stories presented to us during our meetings. And, you know, one of them was from a Spanish-speaking family with Duchenne's disease in one of the children. And they mentioned how there were very few Spanish-speaking patient advocacy efforts involved mm-hmm. in rare diseases. They also mentioned that, you know, the diagnosis happens later because mothers uh, always think that their their children are great, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> and uh, they don't see the developmental delays, uh, for example, with Duchenne's disease, where you, you, you don't start walking, uh-huh. your muscle strength isn't there. So, you know, so, so I think that, uh, again, our, our, our communities need to be educated uh, uh, on what to look for, and what are rare, rare diseases that are really not that rare, uh, they are happening in our communities. We just don't pick up on them until later. Yeah, and, and Dr. Rios, I know you're co-chairing the RDDC Working Group on Provider Education Engagement. So, um, you know, you bring such a holistic perspective given your, your background as a physician, a health policy expert, and an advocate. Um, can you speak to just like what motivated you to help shape and lead this work and maybe um, talk about the the key goals and focus for the coming year? Yeah, I think what motivated me to get involved with the Black Women's Health Imperative on looking at our community's rare diseases is that there, there's a need to, to, uh, to look at all of our minority communities. And I was asked to, to help bring in the Hispanic lens. So that was what the, the motivation. Uh, and also we know that rare diseases are being looked at more by the uh, healthcare system and especially pharmaceutical industry about the importance of finding more cures. Uh, mm-hmm. are the research and development is very important to understanding uh, how to help our communities. And at the same time, there is a stronger interest and not just because of the pandemic, it's always been there to have health equity and to 
improve. We can't improve America without having an improvement of the health of our most vulnerable communities, which are the Black and Latino communities yeah. and Native American communities. And in terms of the purpose of, of the, the RDDC purpose was to bring, bring recommendations so that a coalition could be developed to implement the recommendations, a very action-oriented coalition. Yes. And, and uh, so, you know, some of the recommendations from our committee, which was the uh, uh, patient and provider uh, education community, was really to look at two different groups, the patient advocacy groups and the provider groups. And for both of them, how do we increase diversity within those two different groups so that they, that the groups could be more relevant to the patient community, to the community, so that they could learn about rare diseases. So for example, for the providers, it was thought two things. One, we need to educate providers about cultural competence and to how to communicate to patients, of uh, Latino patients, because, you know, we only have very 5% of doctors in the country are Hispanic, 2% of nurses are Hispanic. So there's a, there's a real lack of education among the provider community who takes care of Hispanic patients. And the second thing was for the providers to have a pipeline approach where we as a coalition should in, educate our community of children that are in high school and college and to think about going into healthcare so that we can have a pipeline. better- Impacting the pipeline. Providers, right. And for the patient advocates, the advocacy organization, there is a great need to talk about the importance of rare diseases in diverse communities, not just rare diseases for the general population, but yes. to be more specific and unique and have, for example, we learned there should be more Spanish-speaking programming within the patient advocacy world because there's so yeah. many Spanish speaking in our country. Yeah. Um, so that's an example of some of the recommendations. And, you know, Dr. Risa, add to that. I mean, so your co-chair of the RDDC working group um, on provider education has mentioned, you know, how, how does the provider education um, work group align or intersect with the work of the Hispanic Patient Center Health Research Institute? I mean, are there lessons for the, from the Institute's work um, that, we, you, that you will use to inform the RDDC's efforts? Yes, I think that NHHF's uh, activities around research mentoring uh, is important because we have skill development and curriculum development for providers who are interested in learning about the Hispanic populations. Um, uh, the, for example, health literacy how to talk to patients and community members about healthcare diseases in simple language. And to, um, you know, when you give instructions to uh, your patients that are less educated or have less literacy levels, they can't read or write or, and, and this goes for English and Spanish, but uh, speaking people. But I think that what's important is that you have to, you have to remember to, ask the patient, did you understand what I told you? And there's a lot of uh, communication skills, also nonverbal communication skills that people don't realize when you talk to Hispanics. Uh, one example was just given to me yesterday at a meeting I was at. Uh, 
many Latinos are very humble and very, uh, uh, you know, very respectful of authority figures. And they will bow their head and say, yes, yes. You think that they're saying they're thinking or they're saying to you non-verbally that they understand what you're saying. But in reality, they're just uh, acknowledging the respect without having no clue as to what the conversation was about. So these are the kinds of skill sets that our researchers are passing down uh, to be able to really recruit and retain people within campaigns, coalition research activities. And I think this is how we can better uh, help the RDDC with its efforts to get to the Hispanic community. Great. It's very insightful. Yeah, I, I want to, um, as we sort of close out, I want to get your perspective, Dr. Rios, on um, maybe both at the federal and the state level. What is the most innovation policy that you've seen or what's the most impactful legislation you see coming that's going to improve the quality and access to care for Hispanic patients? Well, I think the some of the most important activities that are happening right now with the uh, Biden administration, White House and Congress, uh, the new law that was just uh, put in place, it's just started called the American Rescue Plan is going to be one of the most transformative laws since the since the Affordable Care Act that increased uh, insurance uh, for uh, our communities. And the reason why is because it's supposed to decrease poverty in half with the tax law changes so that many, many more working people who pay taxes will be able to have tax credits on all the children they have including our large Latino families and have uh, not only the tax credits, but actually get money back. Uh, and of course our unemployment and uh, money for small businesses and restaurants and uh, you know, concert venues, all of the community institutions are being given support. Uh, and it's not just COVID relief, uh, testing, tracing vaccinations, but it's actually going to the, to the level of poverty and, and businesses closing down in our country so that we can see uh, support that, has never been, that hasn't been done since Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt after World War II. And the next bill that's going to happen will be the infrastructure bill to create major push for jobs uh, that will be paid and will also increase the infrastructure of our public health system yeah. that was drastically decreased in the 1980s. Uh, you know, the big buildings for, for mentally ill were all closed down and now we have all these homeless people. The uh, public health education careers were lost because now public health is main, mainly a surveillance system of where there's another epidemic so that we can, you know, deploy providers to those places in the country. But I think what's going to happen next is that we will see an increase in Congress and the White House with, with the need for the importance of minority people to be trained for the next workforce that will be a public health workforce to prepare for the next pandemics so that we have more jobs for people out of high school and community college to learn about testing and tracing. And, and we have many, many more people getting involved with distribution of vaccinations 
and many more people getting involved in public health education. And that's what's going to, I think that's going to change things as well as climate change and changing our communities, uh, where we live, where we work, where we play, though, all those social determinants of health will be changed by having a new workforce. I was going to say that we'll, we'll end right where we began with it's all interconnected, right? With the social determinants and you know, you, you spend all your days and your expertise talking about the healthcare, but you're you're so right that that you can't talk about people's healthcare without talking about their economic security and the the environmental security and the the around them. So it's been such a, a treat to have you here. I'm I'm so happy to have your perspective. I'm so thrilled to be working with you on the RDDC and um, learning from you and um, and working together, coordinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Rios, for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to HPS Insights and this special series on health disparities in partnership with the RDDC. Tammy, thank you so much for joining me. I know we'll be back with more conversation. It was fun to have you. Yes, thank you so much for for, um, inviting me and also highlighting the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition and look forward to um, continuous conversations. Yes, stay tuned for more. You're listening to HPS Insights. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights Podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.